And um, before we go to our, our second guest, uh, uh, Julia, we had a bunch of coverage in uh, in this uh, new issue of The Independent, including you had a really in-depth feature on, uh, Di- on Diane Morales, uh, once an ascendant uh, left-wing candidate that uh, uh, flamed out swiftly in, in late May and uh, really, really enjoyed your coverage of, of of that candidate and, and the unusual uh, turn her, her campaign took. Thank you, John. Yeah, it was really fascinating to really closely follow Diane Morales's campaign in the weeks leading up to its, you know, implosion and kind of see this very sudden turn um, for, you know, those of us who were on the outside and not, um, and suddenly just seeing kind of this, um, departure of staffers and rapid resignation of people and then the you know the the eminent strike of the bulk of her staff and now sort of um this reality and exposure of diane morales's uh campaign that perhaps was not as progressive as many perceived it to be so now you know with the primary nearly upon us it's been it's really um you know i'm looking forward to talking to ross about um sort of, you know, his observations of the election and also just sort of contextualizing, you know, how we are at this moment in juncture right now, where Diane was at one point sort of the, one of the favored progressive candidates. Right. Yeah. And one of the people we talked to in that article you published was uh, Ross Barkin. And Ross has really uh, emerged in recent years as uh, really one of the premier uh, commentators and analysts of, of New York City and New York State politics. Uh, he's also got a book coming out uh, later this uh, next week called The Prince, Andrew Cuomo, Coronavirus, and the Fall of New York. We're going to talk about that a little later in our interview. But, uh, Ross, first of all, welcome to WBEI Radio, and thank you thank for joining you. us this evening. Yeah, thank you for having me. Very excited to be on Talk Mayoral Race as we hit this final week, and maybe some Cuomo if we've got time. I know the mayor stuff is hot right now. Yeah, we we definitely want to talk about both of them. They're both uh, really important. Uh, so, uh, first of all, uh, if you want to give us your sense of uh, where the mayoral race uh, stands, I, I mean, you wrote, uh, I think, over a year ago in, in one of your Substack articles about how Eric Adams could be a for- formidable candidate, and uh, and that pr- uh, prediction uh, seems to be coming true. Yes. So I always thought um, Eric Adams was a very serious candidate who had a could build a winning coalition. Now, would he put it together? That was the question. And it appears as of today, he is the front runner with the inside track for the Democratic nomination. Now, that's based on polling trends. There have been a lot more polls recently, and they have consistently showed Adams in the lead. They have shown gains for Maya Wiley and Catherine Garcia. They have shown Andrew Yang slipping. At the same juncture, you have four candidates who are never terribly far apart from each other in the polls. And you have ranked choice voting, which is, of course, the great wrinkle here where we're not going to know the results till July. And, you know, a candidate could theoretically not finish in first and win, though that seems unlikely. So I'd say as as of today, Eric Adams is the favorite, and I do believe that's because he has built a coalition that was always there for the taking, which was working class blacks, working class Latinos, and outer borough moderate whites, both you know old school ethnic whites and Orthodox Jews, and it's a tough coalition to beat. I mean, it's 
Bill de Blasio in 2013 uh, pulled off a very impressive feat, which I think doesn't get appreciated enough, which is he was an openly left of center candidate who won working class black voters and progressive white voters and did very well with Latinos as well. Uh, and no candidate is building a coalition that broad. Um, but I do think if you're in a mayoral race, it always helps to have a bedrock of support from people who really show up to the polls. And that means you really want to have, you know, working class and middle class black voters in your corner. And Eric Adams being Brooklyn's first black borough president, you know, having a record uh, with police reform, though, though his views on policing are pretty mixed. He certainly has the inside track there. And it appears he's bringing that all together. But again, the caveat being, let's see what happens in a week. Right. And, and Ross, I, I, I wanted to ask you also about sort of the recent surge of Maya Wiley and, you know, how that has shaped up in the last couple of weeks amid this implosion of Diane Morales's campaign and sort of how you situate her up against, um, you know, Andrew Yang and Eric Adams. Sure. So, so Wiley's definitely gained strength with uh, really two things happening for her that, that were completely out of her control. One was Diane Morales, who, who I don't think was ever going to win, but clearly had an in, in inside track to the, the young, progressive, you know, millennial Gen Z left. She, uh, she imploded, you know, her campaign workers quit. There was a lot of turmoil there and, and she's effectively dead. And Scott Stringer, who really was emerging as the standard bearer for the progressive uh, left of center, you know, mayoral campaigns and had been the first choice of Working Families Party, had won UFT, seemed like an inside track for the New York Times endorsement. He uh, was accused of sexual assault. You know, a woman said he sexually assaulted him 20 years ago. There really was never a lot of evidence produced to back up that claim. But I think that 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 kept him from building out his coalition bigger than it was. He was never a polling leader, but certainly kept him from growing. And then there was a second allegation that really seemed to seal the deal. And Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, who does matter, endorsed Maya Wiley. And that certainly is a shot in the arm in terms of media attention and money. And I do, in my own circle, see a lot of people now committing to ranking Wiley first, not necessarily overly enthusiastic about her since she is you know, a conventional center-left candidate who worked for de Blasio and kind of had a mixed tenure there as, as his counsel. Um, but there's a growing recognition she's probably the most viable left-of-center candidate at this point. I think the question for her is, can she recreate the 2013 de Blasio coalition? Now, she can do part of it, we know, with progressive white voters and up, up upscale affluent Black voters and, and voters of color. I, I think... Wiley's coalition certainly um, is strong in higher class, more affluent precincts. I have no doubt she's going to do well in Brownstone, Brooklyn. She'll probably run well in Manhattan. De Blasio did all of these things, but de Blasio also fused that with a lot of votes in outer borough Brooklyn and Southeast Queens with blacks. And right now, Eric Adams appears to be the working class black candidate, not Maya Wiley. And we'll see if that changes. But I think that's one of her big challenges going to RCV is being able to overcome Adams and, and his support with uh, working class blacks and Latinos. Right. And, and 
one thing that's, or a couple of things that are striking about where we stand right now is, I mean, three of the top four candidates, uh, uh, Adams, as well as Yang and uh, Catherine Garcia, are uh, nobody's idea of a, of a left of center uh, candidates. Um, and Adams and Yang also have done very well with, with people who are non-college educated, make under $50,000 a year. I think sometimes uh, people on the on the left can lose track of the fact that there's a there's a lot more people in um, in the working class than there are in the professional managerial class, uh, as it were. And uh, you know what the the pre- preferences of the progressive left might be don't always uh, sync up with um, a lot of the rest of the city. And you've written about this some, and, and you've um, you know taken a couple of shots at groups like the the Working Families Party and and the, the, what you call the NGO left. Can you talk about what you see as a little bit of a, a disconnect between the left and some of the people it wishes it could speak for, but don't seem to be listening to it? So the left is strong in New York City. Um, I think regardless of this mayoral race, you've seen great gains in the state legislature, and you'll see gains in the city council from socialist candidates, from candidates backed by progressive organizations, candidates backed by the Working Families Party. So, I mean, I, I think overall the left is healthier in New York than it's ever been, right? That that's that. I want to make sure I state that so no one interprets this to be a, a doom and gloom sort of prognosis. Um, I do think that there is broadly speaking, and this is true even nationally in a sense, a disconnect culturally between the progressive and socialist and NGO left and the working class in terms of culture. The working working class voters, I believe, will accept any economically left policy, um, you know, if argued to them in the right terms, right? Everyone wants free stuff, which they should. They want free health care free or cheap housing, jobs, they want money, right? The stimulus bill was was super popular, the free checks, which, you know, Andrew Yang popularized from his own campaign, UBI, right? The, the social safety net being bigger is popular. And, and Republicans know this. That's why they hate expansions of the social safety net because it gets harder and harder to, to pull them away. But I do think there is a division on culture. Uh, you know, quite frankly, the left's message on policing is out of step with uh, working class Black and Latino communities. Now, these communities don't want aggressive Bloomberg-style, Giuliani-style policing. They, they don't want cops to lie, cops to abuse them, to, over, to stop and frisk them aggressively. They don't want, like, Bill Bratton-style justice, but they do want police. And you hear this repeatedly. You talk to people. You know, you can see it in polling again and again, the idea of cutting police departments drastically is not popular in these communities, especially with rises in gun violence. They want to see perpetrators held accountable. If you have a family member who's killed by uh, someone, you know, killed by a gang member, killed by someone with a gun, you want the police to do their job and hold that person accountable, bring them to justice, right? And, you know, the left's argument is often that, well, police stink at their job anyway, clearance rates are low, so defund them. And and that's not that realistic because 
it's not going to increase clearance rates if you defund them. I, I, I support, and I think most people do, increasing social services, increasing investments in these communities. Certainly, the NYPD wastes money. It's overly militarized. I've said this for years. Really, the, the, the post-9-11 NYPD is a lot worse in terms of waste than you know the pre-9-11 NYPD when it really just became this like counterterrorism vehicle and harassed Muslims. Um, but at the same juncture, I do think the defund movement is, is not one that resonates in working class communities of color. And also, you know, again, on culture, you know, working class voters, you know, te- can be more culturally conservative, certainly on social issues, certainly on religion, more church going, um, you know, they, they're not steeped in the lingo of academia and one of my pet peeves is when these non-government organizations or NGOs use very hard to understand or esoteric terminology that is just not used by ordinary people. And they describe groups of people in ways that are just not used in any street corner anywhere. You have to really meet the working class where it is. Um, you can't condescend to them. You can't uh, feed them ideas that are totally out of touch with their reality. And you can't go to a Spanish speaking community and, and use a term for, you know, how, who, uh, use a term, for example, like, like Latinx or Latinx that they don't use. Right. I I've, I've spent my whole life in, in New York city, go to sunset park, go to Washington Heights. They'll call themselves Dominicans, uh, Mexicans, Puerto Ricans, they don't use this word. Is this a major problem? No, but to me, it's emblematic of how out of touch the sort of academic part of the left is where they're trying to impose language on people who don't use this language. And this is this is not why Maya Wiley is losing. I'm not saying that or why she's not winning. I, I'm just using this as a broader critique. And I think just finally to circle back to the mayoral race, the left never had a strong candidate. I mean, that's a reality. I do think if someone like Jamani Williams was in this race right now, he would be in pretty strong position, maybe to be in a one-on-one with Eric Adams and RCV. He's from Flatbush, East Flatbush. You know, he has a working class black base. He's also popular with progressive whites. You know, he, he's someone who could thread that needle. There wasn't a candidate in this race who was well built to do that. And that's kind of where we're at now. Right. And, and thinking about the evolution of the dynamics in this race, um, Ross, I guess, what, what do you, what is, what's your take on kind of the, you know, uh, Andrew Yang sort of falling behind in the polls and faltering a bit? Um, at this moment in time that, you know, even a, a couple months ago, it was sort of looking like he he was in the lead and might um, very well um, be the winner in this in this case. But, um, you know, I guess your your take on the current, you know, why uh, that's happened, why his campaign has sunk a bit, as well as I guess, um, you know, you recently reflected on in a, a, re- a column of yours in your Substack political currents about sort of why, you know the argument that you have that's uh, that that Yang is uh, more is worse for the left, um, or sorry that Adams is is worse for the for the left than Andrew Yang. Could you talk about that? Yes, uh, I, I I believe Andrew Yang faltered for two two reasons. You know, one 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 was self inflicted, and then one was a bit out of his control. So one 
the media coverage was very, um, you know, rightfully aggressive. I have no problem with aggressive media coverage. And it was pretty much nonstop. And people interpreted this to me, you know, well, Yang's going to benefit. And I, I think overall it was a mixed bag for him where he got a lot of scrutiny from mainstream outlets very early on, whereas Eric Adams did not. Eric Adams was not even appearing in the New York Times regularly until I want to say a month ago. I mean, we can double check that. But you go back and look at the number of stories written about Andrew Yang, the number of stories written about Eric Adams. Eric Adams was a non-entity um, in a lot of this coverage. And I think it worked to his benefit because Eric Adams has a very deep and problematic history that did not go scrutinized early in the race and did not define him in any way. And it's coming now, but it could be too late to define him. We'll see. So, um, and the other part is self-inflicted, you know, look, you know, high information, liberal voters matter in New York city. You can't win without completely it's, it's put this way. It's, it's very hard to win while alienating completely high information left of center voters. These are the people living in, you know, Brownstone, Brooklyn, the Upper West Side, the Upper East Side, um, Dumbo, Williamsburg, you know, Astoria, right? And so on and so on. You know, Andrew Yang coming in had hurdles to overcome. You know, his his thin resume being perceived as, as not serious enough. To be honest, he didn't do anything to... to change people's minds on that front. Um, he sounded unprepared, naive. He got facts wrong. He often seems to be talking off the top of his head. And I'm not really sure why, because I don't think he's dumb. You know, he graduated an elite law school. He ran a good presidential campaign. But quite frankly, through these months, he's not acquitted himself terribly well, given that his goal should have been to really at least um, if not win over these voters, at least convince them he's worth putting on the ballot. And I think he did not do that. And I, I do think a lot of high information left of center voters are going to drop him completely. And there's also the hiring of Bradley Tusk. I think that was a mistake. And I was, I was skeptical of it from the beginning. Um, I'm not saying Bradley is like a bad operative. I, you know, I think he's probably fine. The issue is there's so much baggage. You, you never bring on a consultant who's going to cause negative headlines for you. And from the very beginning, it was coverage from, from myself included on Bradley Tusk history in New York City. You know, his support for Uber, his dealings in the tech industry, his gambling interests, and, you know, his, his general nefariousness and kind of how he's this outsized figure, um, you know, uh, on in politics and someone who, who really hates the left, like hates the progressive left, hates the socialist left. He's very open about it, tried to defeat de Blasio. And so when you bring someone on like this, you are going to own all the Tusk baggage. And the more the race went on, the more you'd see people wondering, well, you know, Andrew Yang, you know, he seems okay, but Bradley Tusk is there. And Eric Adams doesn't have Bradley Tusk. Some of them vote for Eric Adams. And I do think Eric, given that he's a former police captain, given that he held elected office, he's got an advantage with these high information uh, liberal voters. And, and Yang has to find a way to win without most of them. Can he do it? Maybe. Is it, is it going to be easy? No, it's going to be really hard. And, and his right. coalition to me is kind of shaky, but we'll see, right? Again, things could change. That's always the caveat. Right. And, and I would also note uh, Yang uh, right out of the box uh, uh, went out of his way to, to bash the BDS movement and insert himself into the Israel Palestine controversy without seeming to really, uh, know or understand much about it at all. And I think that also probably 
antagonized a lot of people on the left. And it, it, it did. And it's funny because Eric Adams holds like literally the same views on Israel and BDS, but Yang was way more ham handed about it and sent out tweets that went viral because he's a bit bigger Twitter account. And yeah, I think he leaned in very hard early on to win this Orthodox Jewish vote, which does matter. But I also don't think it's decisive in a huge Democratic electorate. And for some reason, the Tusk strategies, you know, brain trust felt we've got to lock down Orthodox to get everything else. And I mean, or, look, Orthodox Jews, it's a conservative community. Their issues are also not the issues of a lot of other progressive left of center voters, particularly Israel. And then you had the, the, the uh, you know, clashes where, where, you know, Israel was, you know, bombarding Gaza and yeah. killing civilians. Yang sends out that tweet. And yeah, I think that was certainly turning off a lot of people on the left who might've considered sticking him on the ballot, but are not going to. And, you know, Yang's strength originally was he's going to appear in a lot of ballots. I just don't know if that's the case anymore. Maybe right. he still does, but I just, I don't know. It, it seems less likely. Right. And, and we're almost out of time here, but there, there were a couple other, couple more things I just want to ask you to touch sure. on briefly. Um, uh, you were a candidate yourself three years ago. You you ran a, a very competitive campaign for state senate uh, out in out in Bay Ridge, um, and, and you you didn't prevail, but you ran a, a very strong campaign. Uh, if you can give us some sense of kind of what it feels like, what it's like right now to be a candidate in the in the final week of the race, and then um, I wanted to ask you to say uh, something about you know just a little bit about your new book. I, I wish we'd had more time to talk about it, but. I definitely want to give you a chance to let people know what's in that book. Yeah, you've been yeah, one of the best uh, chroniclers of the uh, foibles and flaws of uh, Andrew Cuomo. Thank you, thank you. I'll I'll try to move through this quickly. So just just on on the book first, Andrew Cuomo, um, coronavirus in the fall of New York. The, the book's called The Prince. Um, you know, an allusion to Machiavelli, Cuomo's Machiavellian, and, and he is a prince, his father is governor. And it's really a corrective to the narrative that Cuomo did well with COVID. Over 50,000 people died. He dithered early on. He compared COVID to, to the flu like Donald Trump did. He was late to shut down the city. He c- tried to cut funding to hospitals and, um, you know, really ran an austerity regime throughout 2020, punished public universities, and was overall disaster. You know, was it Cuomo's fault that all these people died? I mean, no, it, it's COVID. A lot of things happened, but Cuomo really deserves no credit uh, or, or very little credit because it was an utter disaster in New York. And so I see this book really as a, as a corrective to his propaganda memoir that came out a year ago. And so I urge you to pre-order. It's out next week, uh, June 22nd from OR Books, OR Books. You can go to the website, order it. We're having a big party. Everyone's invited June 24th um, at 7 p.m. at Tradesman in Bushwick. So people can come to that as well. Be very exciting. We'll have some special guests. And on the last week of the campaign, it's very exciting and very stressful. You know, your, your adrenaline is really pumping you believe you're going to win. I, I, I think most campaigns in the final week, unless things have gone terribly wrong, like the Morales campaign, think they're going to win. You're very high on the energy. You're very high on the volunteer support. You're very high on the doors you're knocking if you're knocking on doors. And there's just this, this crescendo, this really building of great excitement, and you're not really sleeping much. You're out a lot. And, you know, it's all just really um, – surging toward this one day. And then that day is incredibly nerve wracking. 
And that's where you get your verdict. And <laughs> once those votes start coming in, your heart is just going, you know, a million miles an hour. It's pounding so hard. And uh, so I empathize with the candidates in this final week. It, it's a very fun week, but it's a very stressful week. And it's a week you're not sleeping and not really seeing people. You're just out constantly. If you're doing it right, you're out constantly and you're not coming home till very late and you're waking up very early in the morning. All righty. Well, we'll have to leave it there. But uh, Ross Barkin, uh, author and uh, political columnist, thank you so much for joining us on WBAI radio this evening. 